I invite you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 we'll be looking at this morning. And as you turn there, of course, it helps us to have a little bit of background on Isaiah. He was one of these guys we call a prophet, which means he was called by God to speak for God to the people of his time and really to speak on through today to us. And so as we turn to Isaiah we realize that Isaiah spoke at a certain time to God's people at a certain place. They, the nation of Israel will help us to have a little bit of background. They were developed and kind of matured in their largest expanse as an earthly kingdom nation under the rule of David and Solomon, roughly around the time of 1000 B.C. They come up not too long after that, and the kingdom divides into Two halves, the the leaders can't agree, and two factions are formed, if you will. The northern faction is basically uh, almost all evil in terms of their rulers and leaders from the very get-go. The southern faction is a little bit more of a a mixed bag. Uh, Isaiah is speaking then at this time just a, a little bit before. The northern kingdom is teetering, if you will, because we know in seven. 22, and this is not only documented in the Bible, but all throughout uh, history, that the northern kingdom was hauled off by Assyria, by this nation of Syria. God's corrective and, and, in a way, his loving discipline of his people was to say, look, we've, I've given you the blessings of this nation. We're going to take you off into exile and have some time of correction for them. So uh, Isaiah is speaking around the year 730, just on the cusp of this happening, and not too terribly long after that, the southern kingdom as well is going to fall to the same situation of exile. That gives us a little background in case we would think when we read these words, I don't think we would, but in case we would think that Isaiah is just tossing out sort of idle speculation or some interesting thoughts, we should know that For his uh, stance for God, Isaiah was, again, not too terribly long after he spoke these words, martyred by one of the kings, uh, Manasseh, who put him, put Isaiah to death. To read these verses as well, one other thing, and then we'll read them. As we read these verses, we'll notice that Isaiah is speaking of things future as if they've already taken place. In fact, the last verse we're going to read, verse 7, reminds us that the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And Isaiah, even the way he speaks about it, shows us that. That he has full confidence that when he speaks and speaks of this one to come, this leader, this ruler, this Messiah, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. He's so confident that he speaks of it as if it has already happened. We, of course, today, as we prepare for Advent, in a sense are looking forward to what Christ is doing, but we're also looking back on the finished work of what Christ has done that Isaiah pointed to. So as we read these verses then, we see a joyous proclamation of the glorious things that are revealed to us in Christ. And I invite you to stand with me in recognition of God's word, its power, its goodness to us. And I will read aloud. You all just read along with me silently, Isaiah 9 Verses 1 through 7. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, of them has the light shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask now that you would uh, come. Some of us are gathered here and we are distracted by many things. And we ask that you would focus our attention on wonderful things in your word that you have for us this morning. Uh, Others of us are prepared and ready. We pray that you would pour out yourself into our lives for all of us. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in this time through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Marion Morrison. Karen Johnson. Paul Hewson. Ferdinand Alcindor. Alan Konigsberg, Samuel Clements. Familiar with these folks? Marion practically defined Western movies with his more popular name, John Wayne. Uh, Karen apparently wanted to convey a little bit more energy and peppiness as the actress Whoopi Goldberg. Paul, well, I'm not sure what he was trying to convey with the name Bono, but he epitomizes rock and roll coolness in our society. Ferdinand perfected the hook shot as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Who else do we have here? Alan Konigsberg switched his first name out for his last name and goes by the name of Woody in all the movies that he produces. And the last one, you may have guessed already, Samuel Clemens, is Mark Twain, the famous author. What's in the name? What does the name convey to us? As we look at these verses today, we see that in the Scriptures there's much to be conveyed, especially in these Titles that are given to our Savior here, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There are things that the Lord wants to convey to us. Indeed, I think the main idea of this passage, and you can find an outline on the back of your bulletin if you would like to follow along, 
is that because Christ's glorious names reveal to us all that He gives to us, we should rejoice. We have great cause to rejoice today because of who He is. As we look at these verses, one of the first challenges we see is that we're really joy-deficient people. We certainly see it at this Christmas time when we know there's supposed to be some kind of joy to all that we're doing. And we experience some of it, but if you're like me, it never quite gets to where it needs to be. We have many other reasons for joy. Our family, many of us, our health, our possessions, all of these things that God has bestowed upon us most fully, though. Christ is our source of joy. So we have much reason for joy, and yet we find that it's generally lacking in our lives. And we'll fire up little uh, joy generators, little gas-powered joy generators from time to time and plug in, but there's not a whole lot of voltage coming out of them, and they run out of gas after a little while. And instead, these verses are calling us not to just have a sort of Christmas season gas generator joy for a little while, but to plug ourselves in to the nuclear power reactor of Christ and of His rule and reign and glory and grace in our lives. So we see that we're lacking, probably, if we'll admit it, we're lacking joy that we should have. And then as we look at these titles, and we're going to talk in a minute in more depth about them, but I'll just mention each one of them. We hear these words, Wonderful Counselor. But there's this one that would come and give us insight and truth and life and convey to us what we need to know to walk with him. But we kind of prefer our own insight. We like being our own counselor, giving our own input to what we want to do in life. So he doesn't seem so wonderful often as a counselor. We're told that he's mighty God, that there is this strength and power available to us, but Probably in this room we have a couple categories of people. Some of us are pretty confident, have seen a good bit of success in whatever arena we might gauge ourselves by, and we don't really honestly feel like we need that much outside strength. We hear about mighty God, it kind of glances off our mind. Others of us are so acutely aware of our weakness and our need, and yet we don't really know if we want to trust the Lord, to give us strength. It's almost more comfortable just to stay in our place of weakness than to step out in faith and look to Him to give us strength. He's mighty God, but we struggle to trust Him in that. He is everlasting Father, it tells us here. It reminds us of our adopted status, that we're God's children, that we're blessed to be called His very children. And yet, we know our tendency at every turn, it seems, to run like an orphan to idols that we've got stored over in the corner of our little room, our little bunk in the orphanage, because we're not ready to believe that the Lord, as our Father, has everything we need, will provide all that we need for us. Lastly, we're told that He's Prince of Peace. We don't have a lot of internal peace that Christ invites us to. He's the Prince of Peace. He's working in our lives. We find really really lacking peace. I really don't have the peace that I desire. And many of us are in ongoing conflict with others around us, too. This idea of receiving uh, forgiveness and extending forgiveness is a real tough one 
for us. As we look at these verses, there's a lot for us here that we discover as Christ comes into the world and reveals to us these glorious things. Let's talk about this today, and the way we want to do that is first to talk a little bit about joy, which I think is the main application of this. And then one thing that's not in your uh, outline there, if you want to fill it in, is the, the fact that the Son is given. The Son is given. We need to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about these four titles again and consider what they mean for us. Let's talk first about joy. And look with me at these verses we just read, chapter 9 of Isaiah starting in verse 3, talks about the fact that the nation has been multiplied. And then it goes on and says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. It's not Crazy for us this Christmas season to be thinking about having joy and to be seeking to be joyful. That's what we're invited to in the Scriptures. Verse 3 calls us to it. In fact, Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn there, but verse 12 reminds us that we're called in the Scriptures. It says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. What a privilege to be able to rejoice in Him. The Scriptures even go further with it. This issue of joy is really Important And again, it's kind of a phrase we sort of toss around, at, especially at Christmas time, but other times perhaps. And we need to think about what are we saying? What do we mean with that? It's interesting, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this Galatian church, and they seem to be a fairly healthy church, if you will, and not kind of like that First Corinthians church down the street that seemed to have all kinds of troubles and issues, and Paul had to go on and on dealing with them. Galatians seem to be... Pretty healthy. So it's interesting then, kind of heightened, focuses our attention, that Paul is so deeply concerned with them with this one particular issue. He asks them, what has happened to all your joy? What's happened to it? What happened to the joy that you had experienced in the Lord? In their case, they had moved on to other things. They'd had some of the joy in Christ and then moved on to other things, put their trust in their own abilities and their own righteousness. John 17, also Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer right before he goes to his crucifixion. What does he pray? He's only got so much that he's got included in that prayer. And one of the things he takes time to pray for is that we would be a people who are marked by joy, would have a joyful heart. This, of course, is not, if we know anything about biblical joy, something we're supposed to just kind of derive from our circumstances. We don't get our joy from our circumstances. We get joy from the Lord and the reality of the truth of these verses, and we bring that then to every situation that we face. It's kind of like a prism. You know, if you don't have a prism, you're pretty much, if you want to see the rainbow of colors that are out there, light shining all the time, but if you want to see the rainbow, you've got to catch it. You've got to catch it when a rainstorm has just finished up and you happen to be looking out the window and you see it briefly, and even there it's only fleeting and then it's gone. If you've got a prism, you can take that with you and you can look at any situation and you see the rainbow of light coming through. The gospel is like that. 
The gospel says to us, it's not some fleeting thing that we just need to hope it passes. The gospel is in us as we have Christ in our lives and we can take that reality that we're far more sinful than we ever thought, but God loves us in Christ more than we ever dreamed, and we can look at every single situation and find this light, these rays of colors of God's joy coming forth from them. We should have joy, these verses tell us, but, but why in particular? What are, what's driving all that? What's meant to drive in our lives? It's easy enough to say we should have joy. It's even maybe easy to say, okay, it's, it's this prism. We bring it with us to different situations. But how do we understand the joy that's to be for us in these verses? Well, look with me at verse 6. Isaiah starts out by saying, For us, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He says you've been given a gift. We've talked about grace and we tossed that word out. Well, here it is. The gift, the grace that we have is that Christ has given to us. God has given his son for us. And he's given to us in a couple of ways. He's given one as a fulfillment. He's given as a loving leader. And he's given, we see in these verses, as atonement as well. Let's look at the idea of fulfillment. Turn with me over to Matthew quickly. Jesus is given to us as a fulfillment. You turn over to Matthew 4 with me. Very interesting. We're not going to read down through all of these verses, but this is where these verses are referenced. You know, that's where they come from. We sing about these verses at Christmas time, some of these verses from the Isaiah passage. Interestingly enough, they're, they're not actually applied here to the birth of Jesus. They're applied to his inauguration of his ministry as an adult. And there's a real interesting order of things here in Matthew that I want you to see. If you look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, you'll see where it quotes these verses. And and right after that on down through verse 15, it quotes from Isaiah. But look at where that lands in the book of Matthew. What's at the beginning of chapter 4? At the beginning of chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And of course, the temptation of Jesus shows us, uh, we, we would certainly say it shows us how we can endure, resist, deal with temptation from the evil one. But there's so much more going on in what Jesus is doing there. He's not just presenting a model of how we can resist temptation. If you look through that chapter 4 in Jesus' temptation, everywhere that he is tempted are the places where the people of God in the Old Testament were tempted and failed were tempted and failed, were tempted and failed. And in each one of those situations, Jesus is tempted and prevails. Jesus is tempted and prevails on through. And so when Jesus, when it tells us here, you got to look at things in a little context, when it tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus has come, if you look with me at verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory where? of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Okay, I know we're going a couple different places here, but put all this together. What Isaiah is prophesying is that Jesus is going to come 
inaugurate his ministry. Jesus is going to be this king who fulfills all that the Old Testament people need. And oh, by the way, where it appears in Matthew is right after Jesus' temptation where he demonstrates that he will be for us the one who walks in righteousness in face of the greatest temptation. That's the kind of kingship that he gives to us. He's the fulfillment. He's a son that's given to us, and he's the fulfillment of the righteousness that we lack. So he's given to us as a fulfillment. He's also given to us as a, as a loving leader. Look with me at verse 6 again. We'll read a couple more sentences there. It says, A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And then it proceeds into this marvelous description of one who's just incredible. Just his capabilities are beyond all that we can see. And you know, it's interesting. A lot of times when people have capabilities that are beyond other people around them, they're not very sympathetic and compassionate people. People who have a lot of difficulty and can't really make it and so forth are often really good at coming around others around them because they can sympathize. But people who got it together, it seems, often don't really have the ability or don't really care to be able to reach down. It's like uh, uh, my wife Patience, she, she likes to watch the 80s movies from time to time. And I'll watch a couple of them with her, but they're kind of the same thing. Every one of them has the group of kids in high school and there's the popular folks that got it all together and the jocks and they're cool and they look good. And then there's this group of other kids that are the wannabes and they can't quite make it. And there's this big gap between them and it's all about how they handle that situation. But you sure aren't. One thing you're not going to see, you might see one of these people try to make their way up into the upper echelons of the cool people. But you're not going to see any of these folks reach down to the people down here. The beautiful thing about Jesus in these verses is it tells us that this one who is glorious, is wonderful. And I don't care how great you may think about yourself and your heart of heart, Jesus is exceedingly better than all of us here combined and added together, and yet he still cares to reach into our lives. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He cares about us. So he's this loving leader that defies what leaders typically do so he's given to us in that sense and then lastly turn with me to isaiah 53 and we'll talk about these names and give a few application points and and be done for today but isaiah 53 we would be uh you know it'd be pastoral negligence for me to take us to isaiah christmas time and not flip over and look at isaiah 53 at the fullness of of what Christ does. So again, we're talking about how Jesus is given to us and all of the ways that that, uh, all of the meanings that that has for us. And one of them is he's given as atonement. Isaiah 53, same prophet Isaiah, again writing 700 years before Jesus, writes these words. If you want some, you know, just one passage alone that demonstrates the truthfulness of God's word, how does, how does Isaiah write this? before Jesus ever sets foot on the earth, unless God is working through him. Isaiah 53, verse 3, we'll just read a couple passages. He says, referring to this suffering servant, Jesus, he says he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the Son that is given to us. He's a fulfillment of all that we need. He's a loving leader who cares to reach down to us. And oh, by the way, he atones and gives himself up for our sin. So with all of this in mind, let's pile some more uh, gravy, if you will, on this feast of hearing about this mighty one that, that again, uh, we might, our joy might be all the better fed. Uh, pile on top of this these titles back in Isaiah 9. Let's just take a second and walk through them. We're told, number one in verse 6, that Jesus is wonderful counselor. He's wonderful. Jesus is wonderful. He's, he's not run-of-the-mill. He's not ordinary. There's nothing commonplace about Christmas. We do it every year. It's so easy to get in routine. Jesus is wonderful. He's extraordinary. He's fantastic for us. And we ought to think about him in that way. He's wonderful. He's wonderful counselor. He's not, this is not talking about a counselor in the sense of someone that you go and visit when you're having some problems and talk through some things. This is a counselor in the sense of one that comes bringing all that we need, all the truth, all the revelation, all the knowledge that is needed. He brings it to us. That's the kind of counselor that he is for us. We find in joy in knowing this season that we have one Jesus who's come into our lives and brings us this kind of knowledge, brings us the truth that we need for salvation, for hope. He invites us to that as wonderful counselor. Number two, he's mighty God, it says here. It tells us he comes with strength, comes with power. Look with me again at these verses, uh, starting in verse 4. It says, The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of the oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. What's that talking about? What's the day of Midian? Who's he talking about? Well, he's taking us back to Judges. There's this situation back in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 7 and 8. They were this, the big enemy against God's people at the time with his folks called the Midianites. And there was one guy, Gideon, who was going against the Midianites. Gideon. And he gathers together all these people to go fight. And they're going to try to go toe-to-toe, see if their numbers can match up against their numbers, see if their offense can handle their defense and their defense can handle their, see if they can match up together. And God does an interesting little thing for Gideon. He says, you know, you see all these people that you gathered together to try to go toe-to-toe, make sure you got enough numbers to go up against this other force. I want you to cut a bunch of people out. I don't want you to just... Cut a few out. I don't want you to cut the majority out. In fact, how about we whittle it down to 300 guys? That's what I'd like for you to do. Because what I want to show, what I want to demonstrate, is not the ability or chance that maybe one nation happens to have enough people to go up against a bunch of other people. What I want to show is my glory and my power in taking something very small, something very seemingly weak, unable to conquer, and using it to conquer those around us. And guess what? These verses are telling us 
that God does the same thing, first and foremost, through Christ, a little child sent into the world that would be mighty and is mighty God for us, and also that He would desire to do and to work in our lives in a similar fashion, to take something feeble and small, whatever we are, whatever limited gifts or abilities we think we have, and to use us for His purposes and His glory. When Patience and I were down in Mexico at that missions conference back in October. One of the gentlemen shared about being down in Haiti. And, of course, Haiti's been underneath all kinds of difficulties, but this, was, this story was coming after the earthquake they had experienced. And, of course, as these buildings fell, lots of people were killed. But think about it. You think about the number of people who were killed. A lot of people were hurt. People's limbs gone and so forth. And he talked about... Seeing as missionaries who were down there, they were frustrated. They'd lost all their possessions. They'd lost a lot of things. It's very frustrating to have to rebuild all that stuff. And then they saw a truckload of junior high, high school age girls coming by. Every one of them had been orphaned. Every one of them was missing one of their limbs, an arm or leg or whatever, as they were riding by in this truck. And they heard them singing at the top of their lungs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. True for us today as well in the places where we feel weak. We can gain great strength from God. Jesus is everlasting Father. A little confusing because he's supposed to be the son. So how's he the father? Well, he's the father in the sense that a king is a father over his people, takes care of his people. So that's what these verses are talking about when it says father. He's a father. And as we hear that he's everlasting father, one, it's fantastic that this thing ain't going to run out. This is the Energizer bunny. This thing's going to go on and on forever. It's going to keep going. So it's everlasting, but it's also his fatherhood of us. And we've talked about this before, but it's good to remind ourselves, what does this mean? This means that for us at this time and throughout the year, we don't have to live as orphans. We don't have to live as those who aren't cared for, spiritually speaking. We can live as those who the Lord loves and cares for deeply. I'll mention to you a couple of things by way of comparison between an orphan mentality that I know I deal with a lot as compared to the mentality of a child, a son or a daughter of God. And, and, and ask yourself if these things don't apply to you as well. An orphan lacks joy. An orphan's going to hear these verses that we're talking about today, hear me say we should have joy, hear all these things about Jesus, but struggle to have joy because of these things. An orphan lacks joy because an orphan's anxious all the time about money, about friends, about relationships, about school, anxious all the time. An orphan needs to look good, very concerned with how they appear. An orphan feels guilty and condemned, sits in in guilt and condemnation. An orphan feels discouraged and defeated. An orphan has a critical spirit, even though feeling beat down, has a critical spirit because when you're beat down, and you're not resting in Christ, the only way to get up any higher is to stand on other people. So you have a critical spirit if you're an orphan. An orphan needs to be in control of situations. Got to 
have your salvation through control. And an orphan in all of this, of course, lacks any vital daily intimacy with God. Just a foreign concept. On the contrary, a son or a daughter of the living God is, is freed up to joy because he or she's freed from worry. Because we know that God is going to care for us. A child of God doesn't have to put on an act because we know who we are in Christ. And that's the most important thing. We can be real people. A child of God feels forgiven and accepted. A child of God is open, actually, to criticism. Maybe even invites others. Would you give me some feedback on myself? Because they're confident. We know our righteousness comes from Christ. So we don't have to fake it with others. Uh, A child of God is able to step out and to take risk, recognizing the Lord is over all things and in control of all things, and He loves us. A child of God is trusting less and less in self and more and more in Holy Spirit and is hopefully, we pray, all of us, experiencing more and more of the daily power, intimacy, growth in the Lord. Big contrast, isn't it? Whether we recognize the Lord as our loving Father. Last thing we see is that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And I'll just say here again, we probably talk about it every year, but isn't it a horrible shame that at Christmas time, often with all the things going on, with racing here and there and trying to figure this out, a lot of them good things, we somehow become very disturbed people. (laughs) We don't have a lot of peace. We're not experiencing a lot of peace. Christ comes to bring, of course, peace in his heavenly kingdom. He's going to bring peace all over the world, that kind of peace. But he also comes genuinely for us to have peace and to experience peace of a relationship with him in our lives. I like what Calvin says by way of uh, wrapping all this up. And, of course, he's one of these old stodgy guys from the 1500s or whatever. But he's got some good things to say for us sometimes. He summarizes all of this. I thought I would just read it for us and then one uh, concluding illustration and we'll be done. He says this. He says, now to apply this for our instructions, all of what we've just talked about. Whenever any distrust arises and all means of escape are taken away from us, whenever it in short appears that things are in a ruinous condition, whenever things are bad in your life, Let us recall to our remembrance that Christ is called wonderful because he has inconceivable ability to assist us. Whenever we need counsel, let's remember that he's counselor. Whenever we need strength, let's remember that he is mighty and he is strong. When new terrors spring up suddenly around us, when many things threaten us from every side, let us rely on the eternity, the hope of eternity that is with us for good reason because he is called our Father. And by the same comfort, let us soothe all our distresses. When we are inwardly tossed by various tempests and when Satan attempts to disturb our consciences, let's remember that Christ is the Prince of Peace, that it's easy for him to quickly Allay our uneasy feelings. Thus will these titles confirm us more and more in faith of Christ and fortify us against Satan and against hell itself.
Now, it's interesting, as we think big picture, so let's zoom out from these titles. Let's zoom out even just from this passage. Let's think big picture about Christmas season for a, a second. It's interesting, um, one pastor who I heard compared all of this season to when you perhaps take one of your children or have been at a concert or an event or maybe even a game and there's been a little child around next to you during the event, you notice the adults get what's going on. If they're supposed to stand up and clap, they stand up and clap about what's going on. If everybody's, there's some sad thing that goes on, everybody kind of sighs because there's some sad thing going on. If people are supposed to sit down, the adults sit down and they stand up at other times. And what does the child do? The child goes right along with it. They clap when everybody else is clapping or sit or sigh. Do they know what's going on? Are they following what's happening? Usually not. Don't really understand. They just go and along with it and of course there's a danger for all of us at christmas time in the times that we gather together with friends and family and going out to get the tree and put up the lights in even opening the scriptures and going through something like our uh, advent devotional book even spending time in god's word all these things unfortunately because of our weakness can tend to be we can be like those little kids just clapping along just Sitting because everybody else is sitting, just standing, not really engaged ourselves in what's going on, not really understanding what's happening. So I just invite us. I think Isaiah invites us by proclaiming these wonderful things about our Savior to rejoice, to rejoice in our heart of hearts. And if we can't seem to find our way there, be praying every day, Lord, I desire to have joy that you want for me. Help me to understand these things. Let these things land on me with Great impact and not just fleeting or light impact that I might grow in you. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do praise you for sending Jesus into the world. And we thank you that he has come for us, a son given to us, a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, we ask that you would then give us great joy this season as we recognize this work and embrace it in our hearts and lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.